So, really great news. It turns out, hours after recording this interview with Ali mccracken Gerard and Paul Passimino about Stephen Donziger, he was released home once again to serve the remainder of his sentence. But this discussion is still incredibly relevant because what it shows is that Stephen Donziger could be persecuted, prosecuted, thrown into jail, thrown into a halfway house at any moment. And it's because of things like this where we raise visibility that that will be remedied. And to make sure that you are up to date on this case, make sure that you go to freedonziger.com. Again, that's freedonziger.com. We continue to do what we can to maintain and broaden awareness of and support for him and all those that continue to fight for justice. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. We are live. Okay, we are live. Let's get this show on the road. I'm so happy to be joined by Ali McCracken Gerard. She is with Amnesty International. She is a feminist. She's an anti-imperialist. And she's joining us to talk about this emergency situation, basically, with Stephen Donziger. And for people who probably know, people watching Stephen Donziger, we've reported on him a lot. He is a human rights attorney who has been basically prosecuted and persecuted for defending Chevron, like literally... That's what happened. And he was sent to prison for six months. We'll set it up in a little bit. But basically, the latest in this news is that he was taken from his home where he was allowed to serve out the rest of his six-month sentence. And he was taken from his home and is now in a halfway house. Allie, I just gave like the worst, most disorganized introduction to you and the story. Do you want to set this thing up? I'm sure you can do a better job than I can. Sure. Well, thanks for having me on, Katie. And you didn't you didn't do that bad of a job. So we're in good shape. Um, so like you mentioned, Stephen Donziger is a human rights lawyer and an environmental defender who won this incredible landmark case against Chevron for its oil dumping in, in indigenous communities in Ecuador. $9.5 billion is what the corporation owed the people of Ecuador. And since then, uh, Stephen has just been absolutely gone after by the corporation. And, and what Amnesty International believes is in apparent retaliation for his work with these indigenous communities. And it has just been relentless for years at this stage. At every turn, they have gone, they have spared no cost to go after Stephen uh, to, to teach him a lesson uh, for trying to hold uh, a mega corporation accountable. And so uh, Amnesty International has been keeping an eye on Stephen's situation for many, many years. Uh, but we were very extremely concerned and mobilized internationally uh, when we found out that he was headed uh, to prison for a six-month sentence for a misdemeanor. Uh, it is very clearly politically chumped up charges of contempt of court. Uh, and so when Stephen was sent to prison, uh, I think it was back in October, uh, we just mobilized folks around the whole planet. And we 
had people reach out to the Department of Justice and say, this is outrageous, this is unacceptable, the uh, absolute harassment and intimidation of Stephen Donziger, uh, which is not limited to Stephen, um, of course, here in the U.S., but it is particularly appalling, uh, it's it's unacceptable. And uh, the DOJ has to step in, the Department of Justice has to do something about it. Uh, so we were very happy when he was let out of prison early in December. But now we're facing this new situation. Um, this poor man is trying to live his life um, and the U.S. government is just harassing him relentlessly. So like you mentioned, Katie, just a few days ago, uh, Stephen went for his regular check-in at a halfway house. Thankfully, he had his ankle monitor uh, taken off him just recently after having it on for over 900 non-consecutive days before prison and after prison. So he goes into this halfway house and they lock the door behind him and they're like, you can't leave. And, you know, of course, Stephen, he's got, he, he is under house arrest, but he has a life. He has a family um, and he's, you know, trying to make the best of the situation. They won't give him any answers. So this for amnesty was extremely alarming. You know, the authorities are just detaining him. The, the Bureau of Prison authorities are detaining him with no answers. So we started making phone calls, we started writing emails, and we still didn't get any information. And until today, it's been several days at this stage, Stephen is still locked up in this halfway house, and we still are looking for answers. So that's where we're at right now. Um, and I can tell you more about how we're going to be mobilizing on his behalf, if you'd like. Yes, please tell us about that. How are you going to be mobilizing? Because it's very important. And I want to thank you for all the work that you're doing on this and so many other cases. But yeah, I would love to hear how you're mobilizing and how people can support this. Sure. So one uh, one tool that we at Amnesty International use globally when it comes to individuals who are at risk and facing persecution from governments is called an urgent action. It's basically just like a glorified uh, online petition or email action, um, but our urgent action network spans every single country, and we have 11 million members total at Amnesty, but hundreds of thousands of those people are in this particular network, and they are activated the minute that they get these appeals. And so we've sent out multiple appeals on behalf of Stephen Donziger, which is honestly highly unusual. You know, when we have cases all around the world of harassment and persecution, uh, usually we have to engage a few times. We, you know, combine research with advocacy, with campaign work. But with the case of Stephen Donziger, it has been so appalling how resistant the U.S. government has been, not only to stepping in and helping out his situation, but to even answering us. The Department of Justice has been stonewalling us, the largest human rights organization in the world, for months now, refusing to respond to our emails, refusing to meet with us, refusing to return our phone calls. It is just unbelievable. And frankly, I would have expected this under a Trump administration, but under a Biden administration, it's it's shameful. It's pathetic. And so now, when Stephen is locked up with completely unclear reasons why, uh, we're left to speculate. And of course, Amnesty believes that this whole thing, like I mentioned, is an apparent retaliation for his work with indigenous communities and that he should immediately and unconditionally be released, whether it's from prison or house arrest. And now, of course, from this halfway house that is his new prison. Uh, so what we've been doing previously is activating this network of global activists on his behalf. Uh, and we are going to be putting out the signal um, um, calling on folks worldwide to re-up the calls to the Department of Justice to get them on the case. Uh, at some point, we might be thinking about going straight to President Biden and seeing what he can do. Because like I said, the Department of Justice is not getting back to us. 
but this does not mean that we're going to give up the pressure. They need to hear from us, from every part of the world, from every part of the U.S. And for those of us here in D.C., we're going to be getting in the streets here in D.C. to give them a message in their faces. So that's what you're going to see in the coming week. Um, We are calling on them to assume jurisdiction over Stephen's case. Because what happened previously is that the state refused to prosecute him. And that's why we have a situation now where there's a private prosecutor, which is just frankly also extremely bizarre, going after Stephen. And we believe that if the Department of Justice t- assumes jurisdiction over the case, they'll drop it because they'll see for the, absurd, the, uh, the absurdity that it, it really is. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a case where we have seen the kind of corporate persecution and prosecution that the United States would love to condemn in other countries. And it's quite stunning to see it happening here. I mean, it is and it isn't. It usually isn't. What's weird about this case, what's rare about it, is that this is a white, middle-class Harvard Law grad who is getting the treatment that lots of more disenfranchised people get kind of all the time. But what makes this rare is that they're doing it to someone who's kind of high-profile, And it just speaks to the shamelessness and the impunity with which Chevron operates, with which corporations like Chevron operates, and with which the U.S. government honestly operates, because they are being complicit in this. As you pointed out, as we pointed out, as Stephen Donziger and his legal team pointed out, the Justice Department could intervene and just take this case back and not prosecute him. Again, the federal prosecutor's office, the Southern District of New York, they declined twice Twice, not once, but twice. They declined to prosecute it. And so the judge who was overseeing that case decided to handpick a private firm that had represented Chevron. I mean, the conflict of interest is just striking. They had appointed this private firm. He also handpicked the judge, sent the case to a right-wing judge, Tresca, who is with the Federalist Society. The Federalist Society gets money from Chevron. And so, again, it's like at every turn, he's being persecuted. And this has been condemned by Amnesty International, obviously, but also by 64 Nobel laureates, by members of Congress, Greenpeace, Amazon Watch. It's just a disgusting case, not to mention that this is, I mean, and Stephen does a great job of connecting his fate to the fate of the people in Ecuador who have not seen a penny from the lawsuit that he won them. He and other lawyers, American and Ecuadorian lawyers did. And again, imagine though you, so he was, he was able to serve out the rest of his sentence at home instead of in prison. And now he's grabbed and taken here. And apparently it has no windows. There's a statement that his lawyers released that I was going to read, but I know you don't have that much time. So let us know what else people can do. Like, how can they find the numbers to call, where to write the letters? Yeah. Well, I mean, you just, if you just said a few things that really hit the nail on the head, I think, which is one that the U S government loves to criticize other countries for harassment, intimidation, and surveillance of human rights defenders. Um, and the hypocrisy is unparalleled truly. And I mentioned before that this is something that we would have expected under Trump and something we did see under Trump, um, when it came to human rights defenders working with migrants at the U S Mexico border or, um, water and land defenders from indigenous communities. Uh, There has been a crackdown in this country. Um, Stephen's case is unfortunately not the first, um, but it is, you know, truly shameful. None none of these, none of these uh, crackdowns on human rights defenders should be happening. And um, Stephen is an emblematic case. Uh, it, It is, an affront, I think, to our society and our and and, and our values. If if we 
um, allow this kind of corporate harassment, um, which is uh, tacitly endorsed by the U.S. government through its failure to act, uh, to, to occur. Um, so I think, you know, if folks want to take action for Stephen, uh, it's terrific if they already have been. If you go to freedonziger.com, his whole campaign is organizing. That's the that's the mothership of the campaign. Um, you'll find there Amnesty's urgent actions. There are sample scripts that you can email to the Department of Justice. There are phone numbers you can call. And in the coming days, um, if he is not released from the halfway house, we are going to, as a coalition in partnership with Stephen Support Structure and other incredible organizations such as Amazon Watch, uh, Greenpeace, and Global Witness, we are going to be taking it to the next level. We are going to be escalating. We are going to be publishing uh, contact information for the people who need to hear, people in the U.S. government who need to hear from outraged and concerned folks from all around the world. So keep your eye out on freedonziger.com. That's where we're going to be putting out all the bat signals for ways people can take action. But I encourage folks for now, if you go there or if you just look up Amnesty International, Stephen Donziger, all of the sample uh, templates for emailing the DOJ and all the email addresses are right there. Uh, and we encourage you to send them messages as many times as you want. Can you say that website again? Freedonziger.com. Great. Again, I really appreciate your time. We put this together very last minute because we want to make sure to get the word out about this incredibly important case, which, of course, I mean, what is it? Washington Post says democracy dies in darkness. Well, there's a lot of darkness when it comes to covering this objectively newsworthy story. So I want to thank you, Ali, and I want to thank all the independent media that's been covering this. And any final words? Yeah, well, I just want to say many thanks to you and some of the terrific stars have spoken out on Stephen's behalf, like Marianne Williamson, my Shiro, and Lucy Lawless, and so many other incredible folks. I've seen so many inspiring stories by young lawyers and activists who have said that this situation with Steven Donziger has made them more motivated than ever to fight against corporate greed and to fight against the crackdown on human rights defenders. And so I'm sending all my solidarity to everyone in the struggle uh, with Steven, to Steven himself. Uh, if he's watching us from the halfway house, we're going to get you out, Steven. Don't worry. Uh, we're going to hold their feet to the fire. Yes. Thank you, Katie. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Bye, Ali. Guys, that was great. Thank you so much for watching. And make sure you go to freedonziger.com. And we did a whole stream and I donated the money that I got to Stephen. But I got to thank Mafic09 for this generous donation. Thank you for keeping the story going, Katie. Thank you for that super chat. And of course, going to have to say thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. And I would really, if you can support me on Patreon, support this show on Patreon, that would be great. As I always say, no one gets rich off of it, but this is an example of why we need a Patreon support base because just the fact that this got limited monetization, they're saying that it's not appropriate for ads to run on this, which I guess to be fair, it isn't because it's like Chevron's not going to want to run ads on this, but it, it is weird that YouTube did that. And so here, that's just a, a reminder. I'm just going to encourage people to become Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Also, a way that you can support the show for free is that you can just literally like the stream. It's so easy. You literally just hit like, that's it. Hit like. Also subscribe. Brad's in the chat. Hi, Brad. Brad's saying, please remember to hit the like button, share and subscribe. Another thing you can do just for free, subscribe. Hit subscribe and then hit the bell. And thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you so much to all the Patreons. We really appreciate it. And obviously these are the stories that the mainstream media, the establishment media, and corporate media do not want you to hear about. The entire Donziger coverage has been entirely from independent media. So 
I'm going to read the letter that Stephen Donziger's lawyer sent because this outlines what happened. So this was sent by Stephen Donziger's lawyers. Ron Kuby, who we had, by the way, I highly recommend that everyone tune in at some point to the Stephen Donziger stream that I did with Marianne Williamson, Brianna Joy Gray, Crystal Ball, where we spoke to a bunch of people about Stephen Donziger, including Ron Kuby, who is one of his lawyers. He has three lawyers right now, Ron Kuby, Natalie Segovia, we also spoke to her, and Martin Garbus, who I interviewed, I pre-taped with. And he's amazing. He is Lenny Bruce's lawyer. He was Nelson Mandela's lawyer. Anyway, let me just read what they said. On February 9th at 7.30 in the morning, Stephen Donziger was told that he must report to a halfway house in the Bronx in person and to bring clothing. Since that time, he has remained confined and not afforded any of the normal privileges parentheses, outdoor activity, departing the premises, etc., given to other detainees in the same facility. No explanation was provided as to the reason for his renewed detention. The legal team, along with representatives from Amnesty International, were finally informed after a full day of inquiry that Mr. Donziger was, quote, under investigation, end quote, accused of spending time in his own apartment building outside of his actual apartment. Undoubtedly, Mr. Donziger's advocacy has been a source of retaliation. Further incarceration hinders Mr. Donziger's ability to continue his work in bringing attention and justice to the indigenous people and rural farmers deliberately poisoned by Chevron in Ecuador. It is not lost on us that Mr. Donziger was forced from his home into a locked facility just days before the anniversary of the historic pollution judgment against Chevron on February 14th. Due to Mr. Donziger's outstanding compliance with his conditions of home confinement, his ankle monitor was removed on February 4th, signaling a less restrictive approach by the BOP, Bureau of Prisons. The alleged violation occurred prior to the ankle bracelet removal, making the timing of his reincarceration even more suspect. The Bureau of Prisons has an opportunity to self-correct and immediately restore Mr. Donziger to home confinement to serve out the last 10 weeks of his unprecedented six-month misdemeanor sentence. We remind the BOP that no attorney in U.S. history has been sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court, and Mr. Donziger's detention has been ruled a violation of multiple provisions of international law by the United States, Ronald Kuby, Natalie Segovia, Martin Garbus. So that's basically a summary of what has been happening, of what has happened. It's yet another miscarriage of justice. We've seen so many of these when it comes to Stephen Donziger. And in case you missed it, we're talking about Stephen Donziger, the human rights lawyer who won an unprecedented judgment for the indigenous people of the Ecuadorian Amazon after Chevron poisoned their water. And he won this $9.5 billion settlement, and Chevron's response was to sue him, accuse him of fraud. They based this allegation of fraud on testimony from a judge in Ecuador who later admitted he lied, okay? Chevron paid for him and his family to move from Ecuador to the United States and paid him millions of dollars. So you can't make up this corruption. And based on this testimony... Stephen Donziger was accused of fraud. Then the case was overseen by a big tobacco judge, Judge Kaplan, who looks like Alfred Molina is playing him as a villain. Then again, Judge Kaplan demanded that Donziger hand over his cell phone, his digital correspondences, and Stephen Donziger, because he's a lawyer who believes in attorney-client privilege, declined. He refused. He wanted a higher court to rule on it. And the judge's response to that was to put him in contempt. And he went into something called voluntary contempt because he wanted to wait for a higher court to rule on whether he had to hand over this communication. And obviously, this would have put his clients and people in Ecuador in major danger. So he said no. And then that's when Judge Lewis Kaplan 
brought it to the Federal District of New York, and they declined twice. Again, they declined. So what did he do? He had no choice, but he wanted to see this case through, and he wanted Donziger to be prosecuted. So he intervened, and he got a private firm, another private law firm that had represented Chevron, okay? They had represented Chevron within that year. It wasn't like years later. Like, it was a major, very recent conflict of interest, and he assigned it to that firm. He also handpicked the judge to oversee it. And this is a woman who is very right-wing. She's with the Federalist Society, a right-wing legal society that gets money from Chevron. And she would read the newspaper during the hearing. Like that's how contemptuous she was and disdainful she was of Donziger. She would literally read the newspaper during the hearing. She also gave him the maximum sentence of six months. And this is nice. You'll like this. She said that she had to give him a maximum sentence because it seemed like only the proverbial two by four between the eyes would work for him. Quote, only the proverbial two by four between the eyes. So she basically was comparing treating him to like the way that you, I guess, stun an animal. Disgusting. This is something she said out loud and wrote down in her decision. Again, the impunity with which these people operate, that they don't even cover up the contempt that they have for this person. Again, this is just an example of literal corporate prosecution and persecution, unprecedented in many ways, and that's why it's been condemned by so many people. And we're going to make sure that we keep making noise about this, because honestly, you know, the New York Times, I don't know if they covered it at all. I think that, you know, MSNBC covered it once he was in jail. Lawrence O'Donnell covered it once, I think. Jake Tapper covered it once. But we know that Chevron said, the PR firm that worked with Chevron said, that they would pay when hell freezes over and then they were going to fight on ice. They also said that their approach was to demonize Donziger. We also had examples of people at New York Magazine, the New York Times Magazine. They killed a story. Someone was working on it. People at networks had the story killed when they were working on it. So we got to keep making noise about this story. What else? Um, the New York Times wrote nothing from the time the criminal contempt charges was fired until he was in prison. There. Thank you. Oh, hi, Paul. Paul, you should come on the show. Paul, I listened to you the other day when I was preparing to go on a podcast. Paul Pasimino is, is an amazing activist with Amazon Watch. Yeah, Paul, if you're around, not to put you on the spot, you're probably out and about. Oh, wow. Okay. I think we got Guys, if you build it, they will come. I think we're going to bring Paul Pasimino into the chat. All right. Let's do it. Hello. Hey. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, of course. I, I got a text that you were live. So I'm like, I want to check out and see what, what the latest is that you're sharing. Awesome. Yeah. Even yesterday. Oh, great. So, Paul, tell people about who you are and why you're involved in this case. I'm so excited that you joined because, again, I, I've heard so many people talk about this. And when I heard your appearance on the Red and Green podcast, you just spoke about it in such a way that was non-lawyer friendly, which I really appreciate. Yeah, my name is Paul Passimino. I'm the associate director at Amazon Watch, where I've worked since um, 2007. And I've overseen our work on this case. We have a cleanup Ecuador campaign that we've been go doing at Amazon Watch for 20 years at this point. And we accompanied the communities, the affected communities through most of the lawsuit in Ecuador. So uh, we've been working on the case and I've been working very closely on the case for many, many years. I've been to the contamination. I'm, I'm friends with many of the people that have been poisoned by Chevron. And we go uh, every year to the shareholder meeting. So I've confronted also several Chevron CEOs face to face and uh, also battled it out with some of their 
mob lawyers in court at Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher because they also came after Amazon Watch as well as Stephen. We were named in that lawsuit as a co-conspirator in this global conspiracy to make Chevron pay for the crime that it admitted to doing in the first place. Um, so, yeah, after all these and I'm not a lawyer, I'm a human rights activist and have been for almost 30 years. So that's why I can try to parse out some of the legal speak from the activist speak to make it a little bit more understandable because the legal parts of this have been insane over the last 25 years. And what can I, this is speaking of legalese, you are non, what, what were you, non-party? Non-party co-conspirator. And so actually Chevron and their lawyers at Gibson Dunn, they named many, many individuals and organizations, Rainforest Action Network, Amazon Watch. Um, they named bloggers, journalists, shareholder activists. They went after Simon Billinus with Amnesty International. Anybody that had done anything on behalf of the Ecuadorians were considered part of Donziger's co-conspirators. And so their, their uh, tactic was to be file subpoenas, very damaging, time-consuming, costly subpoenas against all of these people to intimidate them and suppress their rights and prevent them from working on the case. Actually, Gibson Dunn was just slammed by a federal judge this week for abusing the discovery process. And so they came to Amazon Watch and said, you have to turn over every document, every photo, every email, everything that mentions Chevron in the entire history of your organization. And so because they had this judge that you mentioned, Lewis Kaplan, in their pocket, Kaplan was granting all kinds of subpoenas. Fortunately for Amazon Watch, we were based in San Francisco at the time. Now we're based in Oakland on Ohlone territory. And we got to be in front of a federal judge in the Ninth Circuit who looked at their subpoenas and threw out every single one and said, this is clearly just an intimidation tactic against one of your harshest critics. Unfortunately, Joe Berlinger and others were not so lucky. They had to go in front of Kaplan. And whenever you went in front of Kaplan, it went to the side of Chevron because it was all fixed from the beginning. But that was part of how they tried to scare people off. And we were lucky. Earth Rights International represented us, but not everybody could get pro bono legal representation. And some people had to spend a lot of money to defend themselves from Chevron's attacks, which they continue to replicate in this slap suit to try to suppress people. That's why they want Stephen's information. When we find out who he's working with, then they hit them with discovery orders. They, they use this RICO decision as a blunt instrument against anybody who's working on behalf of the people of Ecuador. And then they try to intimidate them or bog them down with legal fees. And a lot of people just can't handle it and they have to go away. And that's one less person to help the people get justice in Ecuador. Well, you know, my mom pointed out that the New York Times did mention this and they kind of wrote a both sides piece on it, you know, saying it was complicated. And I heard you on the great counterspin podcast, which fairness and accuracy in reporting does. And you were talking to Janine about how, I think it was Bloomberg that they wrote this piece about how Donziger's fans still loyal to him. They wrote about him like he was this cult leader or something. What do you have to say to non-independent media about their coverage of this case? Well, it's, it's, blatantly racist from the outset. You know, here's the thing. Multiple judges in Ecuador have reviewed not only the facts, but Chevron's bogus fraud allegations and eliminated them, determined them to be fraud, worthless, basically. But not one of those judges is mentioned in these articles. It's only Kaplan 
and sometimes the Second Circuit, you know, that it was upheld on appeal. Several white judges, although there was actually an African-American woman on the panel that that oversaw, she was appointed by Carter. Um, and then none of the Ecuadorians are considered. None of the judges in Canada actually are considered. And the, the, the scariest thing of all, and the reason that Congress actually started asking about this case more and Rashida Tlaib really got uh, beyond her bonnet about it, um, they're rewriting history because of the RICO case. So what they're saying is, there's no scientific evidence of contamination. And if there were, they wouldn't have had to have a fraudulent case. That's based on Kaplan's findings. Now, Kaplan, even in his decision says, I make no determination about whether Chevron did or didn't do anything in the Ecuadorian Amazon. It's not a part of this case. The contamination was even kept out of the case, but Chevron still uses that. And then the press right, parrots it as if well, there's contention. If there's right. no contention at all. The contamination is there. Chevron admitted to doing it. They even admitted to doing it for a profit. And yet Bloomberg will write alleged contamination still to this day. And that's one of the articles that I challenged to the editor. And he just said, oh, yeah, we're not changing it. And they hide behind Kaplan the same way. Because of that one federal judge, that pro-corporate, clearly racist judge, all of Ecuador's courts are dismissed. And, and whenever I talk to a journalist about this, I say, you have to at least put down that the contamination was clearly admitted to, that it's there, it's not contested. Let's talk about what they contest. They say they shouldn't pay to clean it up, but that's like a murderer saying, hey, look, yeah, I killed that person, but I really shouldn't be the one to have to pay the price for that crime because my friend told me to do it and we both benefited from that person's death. Meanwhile, the murderer is standing there with the with the weapon going, I can't be held account. And now everyone's debating who's really responsible. That's exactly what happened in this case. And it's 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 frustrating after all these years that it's still that that narrative still permeates the corporate media. But it does. Do you think that Merrick Garland, is there any chance that he'll take this case back or not back, take it over? What is it going to take for him to pick up the phone? Right. So I know for a fact that the first letter that was written by Amnesty and Amazon Watch and many other organizations appealing to Garland way back in the beginning of this was in his, it was handed to him. He saw it, okay? This is word of mouth from someone who actually gave it to him. And he has done nothing. He has just decided to ignore this as if it doesn't exist. It's too difficult for them to get into because of Chevron's power in Washington. And look at their connection to the Democrats too. It's not just about Republicans. Look at what's going on with Kirsten Gillibrand, taking money from Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher, nominating a, a Gibson Dunn lawyer for a federal judgeship and somebody who was involved in Stephen's case. And Gillibrand represents Stephen. And she has not picked up the phone either. So, you know, the corruption is pretty, it's it's on the surface. It's not even hidden. And I think that's what's giving Garland cover to just do nothing on this because they know several Democrats are in their side on their side too. We need the progressive Democrats to stand up and make it really difficult for them till they actually have to respond. And you know, I don't know what it's gonna take. And Jerry Nadler hasn't said anything either. And Jerry Nadler's son is a partner, Gibson Dunn and Crutcher also. And they take money. He takes money from them, too. Um, Gibson Dunn is making a real name. That's one of the things that's come out of this, I think, that's actually 
in the longer term fight, one for our side, because Gibson Dunn is really being exposed as I like to call them fossil fuel mob lawyers, but their tactics are so obviously corrupt. And so I think that this um, Reardon is her name, Jennifer. Yeah, Jennifer Jennifer, Reardon. Yes. Um, I think that she's going to be blocked because not only was she nominated by Trump, but she's working for a fossil fuel. It's like, what is Gillibrand thinking? It's just because they're buddies that she nominated her. And I think we need to get some real pressure on the Democrats to pull her nomination. Um, you know, I don't, and Nadler's obviously not going to be any help, but there are some progressive Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee who I think will listen to reason on that. White House is a good example. Oh, Sheldon Whitehouse? Yeah. Yeah. He's on that committee. And he, he, he's actually written letters about, here's another thing that's amazing. So White House and Markey wrote a letter to the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts in August of last year, asking questions about how Kaplan could appoint Preska in violation of the rules, how Preska could appoint a prosecutor, as you mentioned, with a clear conflict of interest. You know, how are all of these things permitted to happen when they're clearly contrary to the normal operations of an independent judiciary? And all they did was ask, what does the Administrative Office of Courts have to say about this? They haven't answered them. Two sitting senators wrote in August. How is it they don't even deserve a response? It is. Again, I keep saying this, but it's really stunning. The impunity. Lack of accountability. Someone says a Gibson Dunn lawyer is getting nominated for a federal courtship. Yes, she has Jennifer Reardon, who also, not only is she with Gibson Dunn, but she also pointed in her own document that she was presenting. She cited her pro bono work, included representing charter schools, They didn't want to have to pay their teachers a prevailing wage. Another great part of her resume was that she uh, defended a real estate company, which was being sued for discriminating against tenants with HIV AIDS. I mean, these are the things that she included in her bio. Do you want to do this? I don't know. Let's see. Do we have Merrick Garland's number? You could even record a voice memo because I I did this. I called Garland, but you should call him. Let me see if I can get this. I I have a number actually. We can do, I try, I wanted to get various people. In fact, if you're watching now, you can do this too, and I'll edit it up. I put it in at the end of one of the episodes. We got different people who called. Let's see. Matthew Clapper is the chief of staff for the Department of, Ju- for the Attorney General's, for Garland. And his, his number is 202-514-3892. Hold on, say that once more. 202 514 Three eight nine two. That's Matthew Clapper with a K. K L A P P E R. Paul, do you want to call from your speakerphone? Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. Sometime I have to tell you about that lawsuit I was mentioning. It's about um, Pablo Escobar and the U.S. government's um, attempt to help hunt him down and kill him, and supporting the paramilitary group Los Pepes. I've been suing the CIA since two thousand and six with the Institute for Policy Studies, and they've gotten thousands of documents revealed. But it's a, it's a, it's a one-person job going through everything that they've given, so it takes me a lot of time to read their stuff. All right, I'm calling now. Okay, great. Sorry, Matthew Clapper is not available. Record your message at the tone. When we're finished, hang up or press pound for more options. 
Mr. Clapper, my name is Paul Pasimino. I'm the Associate Director at Amazon Watch. My organization, Amnesty International, and many others have written letters to your office, to Attorney General Garland. In addition, members of Congress and even the United Nations, all requesting that the DOJ intervene and secure the release of human rights lawyer Stephen Donzinger. He is now once again being held in confinement, despite the fact that he's been convicted of a petty misdemeanor charge. He served over 900 days in home detention, and his his detention has already been determined a violation of human rights by the United States, by the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention. You must intervene and have Attorney General Garland immediately secure the release and compensate Stephen Donzinger for the time he's been held and investigate the process by which a corporate prosecution has has violated the rights of a human rights lawyer in the United States. You can contact my office at amazonwatch.org. Our main number is 510-281-9020. And my email is paz at amazonwatch.org. I don't think this is the only call you're going to be getting on this. It's time for Attorney Attorney General Garland to take action. Thank you. Wow, that was great. We all should just do that. We all should copy that. Yeah, I just kind of made it up on the fly, but there you go. That There's was really good. That's even even better than mine. When I <laughs> when I, I don't remember what I said. I think I, my biggest argument was not to be Trumpian. I think and I said, "Okay, bye, call me back," but I didn't leave a number like you did. You actually oh, yeah, left, I gotta left leave, a, gotta leave something, yeah. even though they're not. Gonna call. My mom is here, and she's like, "Really? She wants you to call Jerry Nadler, Merrick Garland, Mom? You got my mom's a big Stephen Donziger supporter too." So Jerry Nadler is. It, it blows my mind. Like we sent early on, we had 25,000 people signing an action, asking Jerry Nadler to just talk to Stephen. And he wouldn't talk to him. He's his own representative. I mean, it's embarrassing. It really is embarrassing. You expect maybe even some kind of a blow off, right? I'll look yeah. into it. Yeah. They're afraid to even talk to him. He, he, Stephen represents... So much, especially right now, right now in this point in history, when we're challenging the fossil fuel industry for everything it has done to us and and basically risking the entire future of the planet. And now when the people who actually beat them are persecuted in this way, if we don't stand up for them, what hope have we for the other cases? You know, where are we going to bring them to account for their other polluting, for their climate destruction? If when we win... This is what happens. And the U.S. government allows that kind of corruption to silence activists and lawyers. And Stephen, you know, he's had his license taken away. He can't even practice law anymore. It's so disturbing. It's, it's infuriating. Yeah. And he's a high profile Harvard law grad. Like he has high visibility. God knows what they would be doing to him if he didn't have that. Yeah. He was a Native American lawyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Forget it. Or Ecuadorian. You want to call Nadler? And Gillibrand, you could personalize them. What well, I, I, um, I could, yeah. I mean, I guess we could call Nadler. I don't even know what to say to him. I'm so it's. I mean, I've blasted him on Twitter in such a way that it's like, you know, you're corrupt. <laughs> it's clear. It's clear you're corrupt, and your son is working for a corrupt law firm. Um, but I don't even know what we're asking him to do anymore. You know. Yeah, it's true. Jim McGovern is a great friend to human rights, to the people of Ecuador and to Steven. He he contact, he got involved immediately and he started sharing it on Yeah, Twitter. he tweeted. 
Do you think it has anything to do with retaliation after the article that did pretty well released by, um, Rockovich? Yes. Yeah, I, I do. I do. I mean, and I have to say props to, I'm sure someone wrote it with her because I don't think she's been following the case as closely as that. That was an expertly written piece on the case. Anybody who wants to get the overview of that, really, really well done. And you'll notice certain things that seem like she's couched it a little bit to kind of be fair, quote unquote fair. But that I'm sure is because the Guardian was like, you got to play it safe and put, I think there's even an alleged somewhere in there that doesn't need to be that kind of stuff. But apart from that, that was an amazingly powerful piece. And it was so well put, like, what if they had thrown her in jail instead of made a movie about her? And, you know, You've got to, I know that Preska, Judge Preska was furious that he got let out at all. I'm sure she's doing whatever she can to try to get him punished again. Because this is a personal thing about trying to silence him between Kathleen and Preska. I always go back to the fact that she said only a two by four between the eyes. Oh my like, God, yes. How would you say court. that stuff out loud? I, I I was in court. Oh, you were there. I was looking at her when she said that. I had a mask on, right? So you couldn't see my mouth drop open. But it was all I could do to stand up and just scream at her because it was so disgusting. I mean, in the context of what's happened in this case and the people that have been poisoned and killed and generations of poison that have lost their children and environmental defenders who are still being attacked and killed in the Amazon. And she's going to make a joke about how this is like hitting somebody in the head with a two by four. I, you know, and that's very deliberate. This wasn't just an off the cusp thing. She wrote it down. Yeah. It's disgusting. It's disgusting. She should, she has no place being a judge. There's no question. I guess, but when you're, there's just so, it takes so much for anything to happen to a judge, right? Yeah. There's only a handful that have ever been impeached. That's part of the problem. Like very in the beginning, when Kaplan got this case, because, you know, Judge Kaplan, not only did he take this case, he assigned it to himself in violation of the rules. He suggested to Chevron that they file the RICO charges in the first place. It was his idea. How do you know that? How was that revealed? Like, it seems like that would be something so behind closed doors. Uh, that's a good question. I believe it came out during the process of the trial when a lot of stuff that we do know is because Chevron and Gibson Dunn had to submit certain things to Judge Kaplan during the course of the RICO case. In fact, you know how Stephen talks about the fact that Chevron has had 60 law firms and over 2,000 legal professionals working on this case. That's because they had to disclose that to Kaplan. And all the stuff that came, there was actually a bunch of stuff that is still sealed as a part of that case that's even more shocking. Um, some of the stuff that honestly, I don't know how much I can tell you because I know certain people were working on things and they're, they're afraid of getting sued. So they haven't talked about it, but Chevron has a bag full of dirty tricks that their lawyers and their, and their PR team have waged against Stephen and others that are in that, the, the annals of that Rico case and currently still under seal under by judge Kaplan. If he let that go, there's even more that journalists could write about the dirty tra tactics that they've tried. Um, one of the things that I have, uh, I'm looking closely into is that I, I'm sure you watched that hearing, um, the House Oversight Committee's hearing that they had in October of the oil execs, right? And when 
worth was in there. And Rashida Tlaib was like, when are you going to write the check? Well, her office sent pages of follow-up questions to Mike Worth about the bribery of Guerra using shareholder money to pay a federal witness who admitted that he lied. You know, they're using the funds of their shareholders to, to basically commit federal crimes. So you have a member of Congress, and she asked a lot of questions. Worth has ignored every single one. He has not responded to any of those questions. So this um, shareholder meeting at the end of May, there's a resolution that's going to come out that details some of the things that Chevron was asked by Rashida Tlaib, and also this global destruction report that came out by Professor Nan Greer, talking about how they owe $50 billion outstanding to communities they have harmed. All of that is in the congressional record, and it's now going to be part of a shareholder resolution. So there's an opportunity for like a shareholder revolt, essentially, like we saw last year at Exxon, where shareholders and institutional investors stand up and say, you need to, well, the, the resolution is calling for a lowering of the threshold of a special meeting. Right now, if 15% of shareholders vote for a special meeting, management has to meet with them. They want to lower that to 10%. And so the context of that resolution is this mismanagement of this case, the poisoning of the people of Ecuador, the inability to accept responsibility, and then the reputational harm that Chevron has taken on by destroying the life of a human rights activist, a lawyer, and all the other stuff, and now bribing a federal witness. The argument is that institutional sh shareholders need to force management to, to have a more responsible approach to this, not to act like a rogue criminal enterprise like Chevron is. And so we're going to see shareholders vote on that. And it's I believe it's going to be June 1st, the shareholder meeting. So as of April 1st, I think the end of the first quarter, that shareholder resolution will make the rounds. People can contact BlackRock and Vanguard and any place that they know owns stock in, in Chevron and pressure them to vote on behalf of that resolution. And we could actually create quite a stir because Worth, he, he doesn't even have to respond to Congress, right? But he does have to respond if his own shareholders vote a resolution. There's nothing he can do about that. So we should all buy stocks and everything, right? Like for a dollar? Yeah, you can buy. Well, you can't buy it for a dollar. You have to buy a share. I think it's like hundred something. But if you buy a share, um, you can go. You can get a proxy statement, and you can go to the shareholder meeting. This year's, I think, you're too late. Right? They do everything they can to keep people out. But the good thing about the way they're doing it now virtually is that you don't have to actually be there because they won't let you speak anyway. You have to, you know, raise your hand in a queue, and they ignore all the questions they don't want to take. When they're live, they have to listen to you. So that's where you get your chance. I've gone every year that it's been live since 2007, and I get my two minutes before the mic gets cut off. And I, I tell John Watson, Mike, uh, Mike Worth, all of them, you know, you have to take responsibility for these people that you killed. I just learned something really disturbing, too. Um, Mike Worth, the CEO of Chevron, he lost a child to cancer. Now, Think about that, right? That I can't even conceive of how difficult that is, but I know many people in Ecuador who've lost children to cancer because of this deliberate contamination. How can he understand the suffering that they have gone through and not feel compassion and write the check to help them when his company can afford 
the $9.5 billion like that. They make so much more than that in profit all the time. So um, I want to ask him about that next time I see him. Like, you you know what it's like to go through this kind of suffering. Yeah. That's a very personal, devastating kind of suffering that these people have gone through. And you understand that. Reach out to them. Do the right thing. Write the check, like Rashida Tlaib said. So what's it going to cost you? You would look like a hero, right? So so some other oil execs would get pissed at you, right? Because they don't want Chevron to pay people that they harmed. Then they're going to have to do it. But the tide is moving that way anyway. We're not going around and we're not going away. Stephen's not going away. And the movement behind him is only getting stronger. And the movement behind the people of Ecuador is getting stronger. They've actually created this monster by persecuting Stephen so much over the last two years. I've never seen so many organizations involved in this case the way that we have now. Nobel laureates in the United Nations and stuff. It's its never been like that. So tomorrow's anniversary, the 11th anniversary of the decision. We have to make a huge stink about that and push back hard at the shareholder meeting. I just wanted to ask you a question that someone put who's frustrated, but I think you'd have a good response to this. Web Angel writes, it's frustrating listening to you guys. You think these politicians care or you can make them care. They don't and you can't. Time to focus on other ways. How would you respond to that? Because some politicians don't care? Yeah. Well, I mean, first, we have to really back the ones that do, because there are ones that do. And there's more than than there have been ever before, right? Someone posted about Sanders. Sanders was involved in this case before. Even Elizabeth Warren years ago responded to pressure on this case and asked about what's going on. I think that the only, we're not looking for the U.S. government to be the only source of justice in this. Certainly the U.S. is not going to be the principal source of justice because this is a U.S. company and they're protecting them. But Chevron operates all around the world and they are vulnerable anywhere that they have assets. What's interesting about what they've done to Stephen in this slap suit and, and the depths, the lengths to which they've gone after him has exposed their corruption. So walking into a court in, say, Australia or even back in Canada with this RICO decision is not what it was two years ago, because now it's been exposed. They know Gara lied. They know it was a bribe. They know they've seen what the UN has said and all these others about this US judicial process. So they don't have that to, to use as a weapon to prevent accountability elsewhere. The Ecuadorians just need to have international solidarity and support so they can keep moving that case forward and enforce it outside in the United States. I believe that the U.S. government should be investigating Chevron along with the other oil execs and their law firm, Gibson, Dunn and Crutcher especially. But as far as the path to getting Ecuador to, to be paid to clean up and the people helped, I think that's still international enforcement. And what what's bad for Chevron is that it's only gotten easier to get others to listen to their argument now, because when when, when uh, Kaplan's verdict first came out and then when it was upheld on appeal by the Second Circuit, that was a really low point for the Ecuadorians because nobody would pick up the phone. So gross. But now that's that's all changed. So, yeah, I'd say support the ones that we know really care and make sure that we vote in more like that and get re- expose the Jerry Nadlers and the Kirsten Gillibrands um, and then look elsewhere and, and stand in international solidarity. I mean, Stephen's work... Most of his work is not in the United States, right? It's Yes, he can't practice law in the U.S., but he can still do the work that he was doing to support the Ecuadorians because it's not like he was representing them in court in Ecuador. Other Ecuadorian lawyers represented them there. He just worked with them as part of a team. 
Same thing elsewhere. In Canada, other lawyers will represent the Ecuadorian people. And Stephen can advise them because honestly, uh, he's got a strength that I've I've never seen enough. To, to go through what Stephen's gone through, it's amazing that he is as strong as he is, but he only, he uses it and he, it makes him stronger. What they've done to him really does make him stronger. And he's had to suffer a lot, which is terrible. And there should be some accountability for that. But in the end, it's actually worse for Chevron. And can you just tell people a little bit about, I mean, this isn't just about paying for damages done, right? This is like, this continues to affect people. They still haven't cleaned it up. So can you talk about the environmental and health devastation that people are continuing to suffer? I mean, it's, it's atrocious because not only were the 16, and by the way, they accept responsibility for 16 billion gallons. It's probably closer to a hundred billion gallons. Okay. Cause they, they were dumping intentionally for years. All of that waste, and so much of it has run off into the local uh, groundwater, that waste is still there and needs to be cleaned up. That's step one. And step one is going to take more than $9.5 billion because no one's ever ever even attempted to clean up an environmental disaster of that size. Imagine if all of Manhattan were one toxic pool of oil waste and you had to take it all out and dispose of it safely. No one's ever even tried to do that. So that's step one. But also they're continuing to extract and spill and flare. Chevron imports a 17% of the oil that's extracted from the Ecuadorian Amazon is refined by Chevron refineries in California. Most of that oil comes to the US and most of that is refined in California. Chevron's not the only one, but it's one of the, it has three, I believe, major refineries that is that are profiting off of the continued extraction. Just about 10 days ago, there was another massive leak in a pipeline into the Coca River in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon. So the legacy of this destruction, it's continuing to poison people and planet every single day. So actually, Amazon Watch has been working with other groups on the ground, Amazon Frontlines, and trying to provide relief and also taking legal action against the Ecuadorian government because they're trying to expand pipeline and drilling when their existing infrastructure is falling apart. There was a major oil leak, the worst in 15 years, a year ago, and now we see another one. In fact, on average in the Western Amazon, there's a leak every single day between Peru and Ecuador. And and yet we're in the midst of this climate crisis. We know that we have to leave 80% of the known fossil fuel reserves in the ground to prevent a catastrophic rise in temperature. And yet they're still looking for new oil reserves in some of the most ecologically sensitive places on earth, like the Arctic and the Amazon. So we're calling for an immediate moratorium and indigenous communities are standing up and blocking new oil extraction. And that it's the, the Chevron cases are so important and connected to that because they look at the consequence of what Chevron did, but then they also look at who's allowing Chevron to get away with it. And if they're not held to account then those communities are going to see the same process happening with other companies that are coming in to drill and dump, which is why like when McGovern says he's really shocked and embarrassed that a U.S. oil company could do this, to me that says, yeah, the U.S. government needs to stand up and and also step in and say, we're going to make this company do the right thing because it, it in a sense, represents us because it's, it is a U.S. brand, right? It's the second largest oil company in the United States. 
So what Chevron's continue to do while they don't have new drilling there, they're still taking that oil every day and turning it into gas. And if you live in California, one out of every nine of your gallons of gas that you put in your tank comes from the Amazon still today. So we have to prevent all of that if we're going to actually have accountability and respect for human rights and, and the environment. And could you respond to this? Stephen posted this. It's from a 60 Minutes special that's no longer findable. Like they've cracked down one copy of it. And there's a Chevron lawyer who says something. We put that up on YouTube and they kept taking it down. Yeah. So this is um, uh, this is something that Stephen tweeted out. Shocking. Listen as Chevron lawyer. Sylvia. Yeah, Sylvia Garrigo tries to cover up the horrific impact of her company's mass dumping of oil waste on indigenous lands by comparing it to oils in her makeup. So let's. I just thought you would have maybe perhaps an interesting response to this, because I have a feeling maybe that's not the most legit comparison. In the thousands of soil and water samples that we have taken in the Amazon, there has been no detection of any type of toxin that is not naturally occurring in the environment and that is dangerous to human health or the environment. Or it's naturally occurring in the environment. It just depends on where it is. I have makeup on and, and there's naturally occurring oil on my face. It doesn't mean that I'm going to get sick from it. So what is your response to that? Well, I think that the fact that that didn't cost Sylvia her job is shocking. That's one of the worst gaffes I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> nobody could believe it when we saw it that she was actually saying that. First of all, and I and I confronted her about that at one of those shareholder meetings because she walked up to me as if we were buddies and oh yes, I know your problem. Like really, you're going to come at me like that when you've accused me of being a co-conspirator in this massive crime? Um, she, I mean, that's the dumbest thing you could ever possibly imagine, right? So stupid that she would say that the, what she talked about were soil samples that they have taken, which they deliberately took from areas outside of where the contamination was. And when you, we, Amazon watch actually released these leaked videos showing Chevron's technicians finding contamination at their own sites. And the Chevron guy is saying to the technician, like, I give you one job, don't find petroleum. And you can't even do that right. And the funny thing is, when we shared those with some of the mainstream uh, networks, one of the three major networks, they killed the story. And the reporter called me off the record and said, there's a smear campaign against you. I can't run these videos because they came from Amazon Watch, even though they were verified by Chevron's lawyers. And that story, that 60 Minutes piece, after the RICO verdict came out, 60 Minutes pulled the video and it's no longer on their website. And you can only find it in a few random places. You know, thankfully the internet has, has what it has. There are still places you can find, you can find things that shouldn't be, that other people don't want you to find. But 60 Minutes lawyers are trying to suppress that story all because of the RICO case. And they haven't done a follow-up or anything. And Chevron tried its best to prevent that 60 Minutes piece from ever going. Now, here's another interesting tidbit. Um, Sylvia actually is a cancer survivor herself. After that video came out, I believe it was breast, breast cancer. We learned later that she, has, she doesn't work for Chevron any longer. But she peddled their lies about the people not getting sick 
And then she, I mean, I guess that could also be seen as a little bit of karma there, right? And then she actually got cancer and she hasn't said anything about it since. She stopped working. For, I don't know who, she, Stephen actually tweeted something about where she is now. Um, but that goes down as we made a blooper reel years ago of some of the worst, most atrocious things Chevron spokespeople have ever said. And that's right at the top of the list. Yeah, but why? I mean, it's not even a gaffe because no one faces any consequences, right? It's not even a blooper, sadly. It's like they'll just say it because no one's going to go after them for it or they'll remove it from the internet. Yeah, another thing that she said in that interview that was really telling was that, you know, the interviewer was saying, so Chevron is saying you don't want to be in court in the United States. You fought to have, have it to Ecuador. And now you're saying you shouldn't be in there in Ecuador where should you be in court? And she's like, nowhere. We don't think we should be, have to go to court anywhere. They're above the law. Nobody can hold them to account. And that was their attitude then. It's still their attitude today. Wow. Wow, awful. Uh, David T says, candidate summit sees the House. Can we discuss those issues with the nine candidates running for CA House? What would Paul want them to address, to do to address this? So, on Wednesday, Marianne Williamson and Brianna Joy Gray and Crystal Ball and Juliana Forlano and I are doing one of our dreams again, and this is for non-corporate congressional candidates. So I think they're asking, I believe, David, is this right, that you want to know what Paul would want these non-corporate members of Congress to commit to doing? Yeah, well, uh, that's that's great, first of all, that that's happening. A couple months ago, Amazon Watch released a report with Stand.Earth called Linked Fates, and it documents that importation of crude from the Amazon to California and the United States. I would ask them all to get that report and to look at how they can affect policy that would prevent the importation. Think of it like blood diamonds. This crude is destroying the Amazon and indigenous peoples on top of what it's doing to our environment. And it should be prevented from coming in. It's, the importation of it should be a human rights crime. So I would ask them to look at what policies they can help support that would prevent the importation of crude that is that destructive. And all of the data is in that report. It's on, if you go to amazonwatch.org, it's called Linked Fates. Linked Fates, okay, great. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Really appreciate it. So glad that you were, I saw yeah. you in the in the chats. Yeah, me too. I was like, I was on my phone and I thought, well, if I go on the computer, maybe I can chat and say hi. Yeah. Oh, great timing. And yeah, good that I don't care about the Super Bowl. So yeah, thank God for that. And then Zachary, where is info on that shareholder meeting? Recently met someone at Goldman who may have connections. So the the information isn't out yet because what happens is the proxy packet is released at the end of the first quarter, I believe. So April 1st, Chevron will have a, an investor call. Check back at amazonwatch.org and on our social media, and then you'll see what's happening with it. But there will be stuff happening starting in April leading up to the shareholder meeting. And what, what happens is because the shareholder meeting is virtual, um, people sub who submit resolutions record audio or they record video and then they submit the audio. And then you can listen in to the shareholder meeting. They play the audio and then they play the response. So what we've been doing is like last year, we record worth talking in response and then we share what he said online. And that actually allows you to hear what's going on in a way that normally you can't because they don't permit any recording devices into shareholder meetings. Only press can only come in with paper and pencil. So this way you can actually know a little bit what's going on. So if, at, through Stevens, through our Twitter feed at Amazon Watch, et cetera, you'll see 
um, when the meeting's coming up and how you can participate. Great. Well, thank you so much, Paul. Really appreciate this. Come back anytime. I'd love to hear about what you're doing in Colombia. That sounds amazing. Yeah. So important. Also, it's a great way to get people. People love the Escobars. You know, they're like so enthralled, understandably, by that history. So it's actually a really useful way to get people, I think, involved in this. Because you'll, I bet we could get tons of people would tune in who wouldn't otherwise listen to something about politics. Yeah. They're just curious about Escobar. So. Yeah, the, the narcos connection. Yeah, exactly. Thank God yeah. for small favors, like <laughs> really problematic shows like that. Yeah. Which, to its credit, they do make the U.S. look terrible in terms of doing whatever they thought they needed to do to defeat communism. Yeah. Well, let's save that for, yeah, a, that's for another discussion. Because yeah. I have a lot to say about that one, and I'd be happy to talk about it. But thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. Come back on. Okay. Okay. Bye, Paul. Paul Pazimino. So honored to have Paul on the show. What a great show. And I'm so grateful to everyone who tuned in. Look, we you take that, Super Bowl. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Halper, Nick Palm, Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time. Bye.